Praise the Lord, everyone. It's good to be in the house of the Lord tonight. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Ephesians, the fourth chapter. I'll begin reading in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 4. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as you are called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Lord bless you, may be seated. The book of Ephesians is probably one of my favorite books in the New Testament. I have used it for years in helping people. It addresses every issue of our life. It addresses our spiritual life. It addresses our natural fleshly life. It also addresses our soul or suke life. It addresses everything about our life. It teaches us how to live. It gives us answers about life and shares or shows us the ways that if we live according to the principles of God's Word, that our lives will be whole and we'll have a better life. There's really no life that can compare to living for God. When you live in the world and you live for the moment, you're never satisfied. You never get what you're looking for. You never find the happiness you're looking for. It's only when you start living for God that you really can try, find true happiness. You can, you can discover a relationship that no matter the circumstances of life nor what life has produced, you can still have joy and have peace. You don't have to live your life worried all the time because you know that he is able to keep everything you have given to him or committed to him, and he's faithful. He has never, he has never abandoned his promise. All you have to do is look at his people and see how that God, through the years, has always kept his promise. Now, his people didn't always keep their promise. They didn't obey his laws or his commandments. But even though they violated their side of the covenant, he never violated his. He said, I'll bless you. I'll bless them that bless thee. I'll curse them that curse thee. And through you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And that is exactly what he's done. Even today, our world is blessed because of the Jewish people. Probably 70 to 80% of all of our discoveries of medicine that has come out are through a Jewish mind. Uh, most of our accomplishments we have today that we see today are a product of God blessing his people that have blessed the world. God keeps his promise. He will do that for us. If we ever learn to trust him, 
He will never abandon us, will never be forsaken. He'll always be there. Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus in the first four chapters, has talked about that relationship that every one of us can have. And it's not a relationship that's not unattainable. All of us can experience it and enjoy it if we choose. Living for God was never intended to be something that's difficult to do. shouldn't be hard. I've heard people make a statement that if you live for God hard, it's easy. If you live for God easy, it's hard. I don't believe that. I don't believe that God intended that living for Him would be difficult to do. It's not hard to live for God. It's really simple. Now, the biggest struggle you have is with you. It's called flesh. It's the devil all of us fight. We battle it every day of our life. That's what causes us issues and and causes us conflict in our lives. But if we follow the principles of the Word of God, he, He has made us accepted in the beloved. That's what He said in chapter 1. I didn't earn any of this. We are all saved by grace. Now, there is a difference in being saved by grace and living by grace. The Bible doesn't teach us to live by grace. The Bible teaches us to live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Grace is the door that we get in. It's the invitation that lets every man, whosoever will, that's grace. But once I've walked through the door, I don't live by grace. I start living by faith. And faith is the conviction that God is who God is, that he will keep his promise and he will do what he has said he will do. That's faith. Pestis literally translates a conviction of the truth of something. What is that truth? That Jesus Christ is God manifest in flesh, that the God of eternity overshadowed a virgin, produced a son that we call Jesus Christ. And that son went to a cross and died for us that we could have salvation. That's faith. If you believe that story, you have faith. Faith is not wishful thinking. It's not trying to say, I believe, I believe, I believe. And and after you said, I believe enough times, you have faith. Faith is a conviction that God's going to do what he said he would do. Now, God don't always do what I want him to do. God doesn't do that. God will answer my prayer. Now, it might not be the answer I want, but he will answer my prayer. God does heal. He will deliver. He does all those things for us. But he doesn't do what I want him to do. I'm supposed to be doing what he wants me to do. That's the difference. But he has made me accepted. I I don't have to, to do something to get God's blessings. I receive the blessings of God simply because I'm his child and that I carry his name. And because I carry his name, I'm his child. He blesses me, not because I've earned it or I've done something to achieve it. It's simply because I belong to him. Now, the world would like to say that's grace, but that's not grace. That's part of being the part of the family. That's what kids get to do. Kids have this ability to get things or receive things because of family privileges. Maybe that's what I ought to talk to you about tonight, is family privileges. Those are really important. When mom and dad were alive, everybody that was part 
of mom and dad's family had a key to their house. At one time, I think there was something around 42 or 43 of those keys in circulation. And everybody that belonged to that family had a key to the front door. When you went to mom and dad's house, you didn't knock on the door when you got there so that they'd let you in. You, you didn't wait for them to let Matter of fact, if, if they had to come and open the door, you were in trouble. You just came, put your key in the lock, opened the door, and when you opened the door, you just announced that you were there. Hey, Mom, I'm here. You didn't want to scare them because they didn't hear you, so we just announced we were there. Mom had this incredible ability to know what I desired. I, I don't know how she did it. Sometimes I, I, I thought as a kid that she had eyes in the back of her head because there was not a day in my life that I did something I shouldn't do that my mother didn't know about it. Not one time. I'd get home and she'd look at me and say, what would you do today, James? Well, I didn't do anything. Yes, you did. <laughs> what would you do today, son? And I'd try to argue, Mom, no, I didn't do it. James, what would you do today? Well, how do you know? Because I was praying Mom had an incredible relationship with God. She knew everything about my life. She got it through prayer. That's what God does for us. That is a privilege of being his child. If you're his child and you really listen, he'll warn you before things show up. But if you're busy doing other things, you'll miss the warning. But if you're listening, you'll hear because you're part of his family. And he loves us unconditionally. Mom always knew what I was craving. I'd get off an airplane having traveled and, and come from the airport by her house and see how they were doing. And I'd open the door and, and invariably, I don't know that there was ever a day that I got off that airplane craving chicken and dumplings or, or red beans and, and cornbread or, or pork chops that when I got to her house, they were on the, they were on the stove. And I'd ask her, Mom, how, how'd you know what I'd like today? She oh, I just kind of had this, this feeling you might come by my house today and you might want something to eat. And so I just made sure it was there. That's a family privilege. Do you understand that every time you show up here, God already knows what you need and what you want before you ever get here? And so the atmosphere is always going to be prepared for us when we arrive, because he knows. I'm his child. Now, grace let me become part of his child. But once I'm his kid, this is about family. It's not about anything else other than the fact I belong to his family. I carry his name. I'm his child. And when I become his child, I get privileges other people don't have. I can open that door anytime I want. I have a key to get in anytime I want. I don't have to schedule an appointment. I don't have to wait for an invitation. I, I don't have to call somebody to see if they can get me in. When I need him, he's always available. He's always there. Without exception, he's always there. I, I don't care how bad circumstances get or or, or what happens, God 
has never abandoned his children. There's no one ever had to call the authorities on God because he abused one of his kids. He doesn't do that. Now, often we take that the wrong way because we do something and God don't punish us for it or or we think we get by, so we start thinking, well, he must not have a problem with what I did. And so we start thinking that that behavior was okay when in truth it's not okay. And we know that if we just think about it. You think God's changed his mind? You know, I've heard some weird stories through my life, and some of them that just, I, 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 when I say weird, I, maybe dumb is a better word. <laughs> you know, we, we seem to think that sometimes that because we do certain things, that we earn special rights. And, and I've had at least five men over the 30 years I've been doing this that have said to me that because I was faithful and I paid my tithes and I supported missions and I was always at church and I did what the pastor asked and I was always available and I never abandoned church. If there was church on Wednesday night, I was there. If there was church on Sunday, I was there. If there was revival, I was there. I was always faithful. And because of my faithfulness, God rewarded me with the privilege of having an affair. I've heard that at least five times. So that dumb story is not unique to one person. Us humans seem to think that when we we do something that God doesn't get our attention when we do it, that God don't really have a problem with what we've done. That's not true. He loves us in spite of us and blesses us when we don't deserve it. And when he blesses us when we don't deserve it, we can't look at it and say, well, that's, I, I, he, he's okay with me because, no, you're his kid. And he's going to take care of you. And he's going to try to bless your life and make your life better in spite of our behavior. Paul's writing to this church that's doing this. This is the attitude this, this church has. That, that they came up with this idea that, that because of grace that God's really... Uh, he, he, he's not going to punish them or he doesn't really care what they do and, and that anything they do is okay and it's not okay. The will of God will never violate the Word of God. Now, you, that's an, that is an absolute. You can mark that down. God will never change his purpose or will to contradict what's in this Bible. It'll never happen. So if I'm convinced that God has something outside of what's in this book, it's not God. It's just me trying to play God or desiring my own way or wanting to do whatever I want to do because I think I have a right. But when you have, when you have family privileges, there's things that come with being part of this incredible family of God. You see, at this house, when you do make mistakes, God doesn't rub your nose in, or God doesn't say, I told you so, or you listen to me, this wouldn't have happened, or I knew you would do this. God's never said that. Now, God knows that, but he doesn't say that. See, God knows that you're going to fail tomorrow. 
and you repent today and he forgives you today, knowing tomorrow you're going to do it again. But that didn't keep God from forgiving you today because he's faithful and he loves us and he loves us unconditionally. Part of that faithfulness that he has to us is is to give us an ability to not live under guilt and shame. God don't want us living under guilt and shame. God's desire is that we live a whole life. See, guilt and shame won't change you. Alcoholics have a lot of guilt and shame, but it never changes them. What changes you is conviction. And when conviction shows up and you're convicted of your behavior and you repent, that's what changes your life. Guilt and shame won't. So God doesn't use guilt to manipulate us. He doesn't use shame to manipulate us. He convicts us. And when conviction shows up and I understand that I, I look at me carefully and I let God speak to me, then I change my life. When I do that, then God gives me some privileges that others don't have. Paul or Peter preaching in Acts 3, I think it's the 19th verse of chapter 3 said, Repent you therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Repent you therefore and be converted. The only thing that will keep you out of heaven is sin. And sin will keep you from heaven. So if you repent and it's covered, then it won't keep you from heaven. But unrepented sin, that'll keep you out of heaven. What is sin? That's a question being asked on a regular basis. Is this a heaven or hell issue? Well, unfortunately, I, I, I have to tell you tonight that there's probably not very many things in your life that are not a heaven or hell issue. He that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it's sin. If you know that it'd be a good idea not to say something really derogatory to your wife or your husband, that, that, <laughs> hello? See, I, I am really convinced you don't need a devil to go to hell. I'm convinced you need a family to go to hell. It's not what the world does or the devil does to us that wrecks lives. It's what we do to each other. It's the words we say and the behaviors we commit and, and the things that we do in our lifestyles that wreck lives. It's words like, I hate you. I wish you weren't born. You're stupid. You're dumb. You can't do anything right. You, you're just a mistake. Why did I marry you? You're not lovable. We have all these statements that we make. They're deadly. They hurt. They cut. They wreck. Jesus teaching Nazareth, or I'm sorry, it wasn't Nazareth. It was on Galilee somewhere along the seacoast. Teaches a story that others heard but didn't record. And a doctor shows up and hears this story and for some reason felt it Incredibly important to stick in his history of the life of Christ. It's found in the book of Luke, the 15th chapter. And in that book, there are chapter, there are three lost things. 
There are things that are lost because it's their nature. See, there's one sheep out of ninety out of a hundred that gets lost, and the shepherd puts the ninety and nine in the fold or, or, or inside the fence and closes the gates, and he goes and searches for that one lost sheep. And when he finds it, he comes rejoicing and calls his neighbors and has a celebration because the sheep that was lost is found. Now, sheep have no sense of direction. If a sheep gets lost, it can't find its way home. It's not like a cow or a horse. If you leave them somewhere, they have a sense of direction. They can find their way home. A dog can find its way home. But a sheep, it cannot find its way home. If it gets lost, it's lost. It can't find its way home. And a lot of times when it discovers or realizes it has none of the other herd around it, it panics and then starts running and will run off a cliff or, or run into bushes and get caught and trapped and that's where the wild animals catch them and devour them. So for a sheep to find its way home, it takes someone who knows direction. See, there are things that are lost by nature. They, they, they have a problem finding their way home. Now, that's a very small percent. That's only one out of 100. That's 1%. Then there's things that are lost in the house, 10 coins. And one of ten is lost, and the woman sweeps the house because their homes had dirt floors, and so the only way she could find what she had lost was to get a broom and make sure the house, and in sweeping the house, she found the coin. And that coin is 10%. Now, if you look at that coin and what's lost there or the way it's lost, it, it was lost by neglect. Someone just didn't pay attention. Laid it on a table, knocked it off. Somehow it, it got dislodged, and, and now it's not where it was before. And so by neglect, that's a much larger percentage of things that are lost. It's lost in the house, not away from the house. In the house, it was lost by neglect because they didn't pay attention. And she swept the house. So if you're going to lose something in the house, first thing you got to do is clean it up. Isn't that strange? You gonna find anything at the house? You gotta clean the house. When you clean the house, you find lots of stuff. And some stuff you throw away, some stuff you keep. But you need to clean the house. And it, it's good for us on occasions to clean our house and look at our lives and figure out what we have. What, what maybe there's some things there that don't need to be there that we've let accumulate that that we need to get rid of. And it, it, it appears to me, just reading the Bible and looking at history, that if you look at all of, uh, of the Scripture and then apply history to it, people eventually took on the nature of the environment they were in. Those seven churches of Revelation, everything God says I have against you are conditions of their city. They lived in the towns they were in long enough, they started thinking like them, acting like them, responding like them. And when they did, God said, I, this is a problem. And the biggest struggle that the church will have in the last day is not thinking like and acting like the world it lives in. We're being pushed that direction on a regular basis. We're, we're, we're being forced to think like them. We're being forced into deciding whether or not we believe the Bible 
about sin and what certain sins are and if they're in the Bible, if it's really a sin. And as we're being forced, eventually it'll become a criminal offense to say some of the things that are in the Bible. There'll be issues as a result of just believing the Bible for what the Bible says. We're headed there. You would have thought last year at this time we'd have a ruling by the Supreme Court that homosexual relationships is a marriage. Who, who would have ever thought in America that would have happened? No one, but it did. They're forcing us, even though the Bible says and takes a stand against it, even though there are scriptures that emphatically address that issue. So we're being forced, and we've got to be careful that we don't start reasoning like the world and we use ethics to make decisions about issues in life. Is it the ethical thing to do? It's not about being ethical. It's about being right or wrong. It's what the Word says. This is the way I live my life. And so I can't let my world start affecting the way I think or believe. And the third lost thing was the son. Now that story is nowhere but in the book of Luke. The story or the parable of the lost sheep, lost coin, others record. But Luke's the only one who records this parable of the lost son. Now, that's one out of two. That's 50%. Now, this one isn't lost by nature or neglect. This one is lost by choice because someone chose to leave. I don't like it here. My older brother, he caused me lots of problems. I can't live under his shadow. He's going to get everything anyway, so why don't you give me what little I have and let me go. See, in this day, the older brother got two-thirds of the inheritance. All the other children divided the one-third that was left. So he was going to get very little of that inheritance. And so he says, give me what's mine, and he leaves. And he's lost because he chooses to go. But when he came to himself and he came home, the father doesn't accuse him of doing anything wrong. His brother does. His older brother says, you've lived with harlots. But dad doesn't say anything like that. Dad doesn't accuse him of anything. Dad never says, I told you so. If you'd listen to me, this wouldn't have happened. Dad prepared for his return the day he left. He put a calf in the pen. The Greek language, they have no indefinite article. There's no air and in the Greek language. But there is a definite article, and there are about... 127 variations of that definite article. And each variation uh, is simply to reflect the noun or verb that it's being used with. But their indefinite article literally translates the one and only. There's not two fatted calves. There's only one fatted calf in the pen. Everybody knew what the calf was for. There's the one and only fatted calf. The older brother gets angry when he sees the pen empty because he knew what happened. He knew his brother had left, come home, and here he is at home, and now he's getting treated as if he did nothing wrong. You know, that's really hard for our human nature to do. When someone does something 
and you know they deserve punishment. Our human nature really has a problem letting them live life without reminding them of their failure. Now, God doesn't. Don't you, or aren't you glad at this house, this father that we live with doesn't live like our natural fathers? And he's not going to say, I told you so. If you'd listen to me, this wouldn't have happened. Or, or, or I knew you couldn't do this. Or, or I, I knew it was going to happen eventually. It's just your nature. He doesn't say that. What he says is, come on, son, look around you. There's a crowd of witnesses standing on heaven's balcony shouting, come on, get up, son, you can make this. Though a righteous man fall, he shall arise. Though he falls seven times, he shall get up. That's how God views us. A lot of scholars believe that the story of the prodigal son is the story of two churches the Jewish church and the Gentile church, and that God rep- or the Father represents God. Maybe it is. I- I'm not sure that Jesus was thinking of all these theological discussions when he used this parable. I-, I think the simplest form of interpretation is probably the best. That This is just a father that loved his son so much that no matter what kind of failure he made, he'd always let him come home. He'd always let him back in. And he was prepared when he left for him to return. Notice his behavior when this boy comes back. The Bible says, Jesus said, when he saw him a long way off, he ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. He ran. Literally, it says, racing with all his might. He fell. He launched himself at him and covered him with kisses. Now, if you've been around a pig pen very long, you know that it's not the most pleasant place to be, and, and the aroma and odor of that place gets in your clothes. It'll, it'll wreck, it'll destroy. It's, it's bad as a skunk. There's no place that smells worse than pig pen. I, I had a dear friend that I went to Bible college with years ago. Brother Eldon knows him very well. His name is Paul Hartenstein, and we went to visit him one summer in Illinois, and they have, uh, they raise pigs, hogs, whatever, swine. And they, they have state-of-the-art places on their farm that they raise them. They, these pigs' feet never touch the ground. They're, they're on this graded platform, and it's all state-of-the-art, and, and everything's washed away every day. And it's supposed to be clean, but I'm telling you, you can't wash that odor away. I just walked through the building from one end to the other. And when I got back to the house, my wife said, where in the world have you been? You can't come in this house. I had to change clothes in the garage, and they threw them away because you couldn't get that odor out. Dad knew where that boy had been just by being in his presence. He didn't stop the moment his nose picked up the odor. Man, you stink. Go take a bath. I'll hug you. In his filth, in his all the junk that was around him, he just kept on kissing him. He covered him with kisses. 
Now, if that represents backsliders, that's what God desires or does. And it says, if you read the story, that in heaven, that heaven rejoices over one sinner that repents. Heaven celebrates every time a human admits, I messed up. I made a mistake. I failed. It said, a sinner. All of us are sinners. We're God's kids, but we're still sinners. We don't have halos on tonight. It doesn't take a whole lot for you to do something really stupid other than an opportunity. It's all it takes. You put yourself in a position long enough, you'll do something really dumb. Because that's in our nature. That's in our flesh. When we let our guard down, our flesh will fail. It's our nature. But when we fall, he, he, his desire is for us to get up. And, and he's going to hug us. And then he turns to a servant. Now, are these people at the house? Where are they? Long way off. Moment he saw him as a distant figure, and they started running. I'm sure the boy didn't start running to his dad. When he started running at his son, he's a long way from the house. How in the world was there a robe and a ring a long way from the house? How'd that happen? How, how could a servant instantly stick a ring on his finger? robe on his back and shoes on his feet. How could that happen? They're not at the house. The only way that can happen is that dad rehearsed that event every opportunity he had, and the servants knew when they saw him take off, they better go get what they needed so they'd be standing by him when he got to where he was going. Those servants had been trained to watch dad and when dad took off running, a servant picked up a ring, one picked up a robe, one picked up a pair of shoes, and they all start running down the road behind father. And once the boy has apologized and repented. Now, in the pig pen, he said, I'm going to tell dad I've sinned against you, I've sinned against heaven. I don't deserve to be your son. Just let me be a servant. Dad, let him say, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven. But he would not allow him to degrade himself in the presence of servants to say, I'll be like one of them. Even in his failure, he was still God's kid. Even in his mistake, he was still a child of God. See, God looks at his creation a whole lot differently than you and I. When we watch people mess up, we're ready to take them out. They just keep repeating it, but not God. God says, come on back, son. And he, he always has, has the calf ready so that the moment someone recognizes the need, they're there. And he's there. And they have the robe and the ring and shoes. We could talk about all those things that they represented, but we don't have time. They were part of what made him the son of the father. He never lost, even though he had no inheritance, he had no money. It's all gone. He'd wasted all that. But penniless, without anything, he still belonged to his father, 
because that's a privilege of the family. You, you may wander from God and come back with nothing. You'll still get to use the name, be part of the family, even though you may have lost everything in the process. If they can just get you home, your life will change. Then Peter, preaching in Acts 3.19, says, Repent you therefore and be converted. Why? That your sins may be blotted out. Blotted out. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense to us, does it? Well, powerful hearing that. Maybe I'm holding it by the wrong way. What does blotted out mean? Just cover it up? Put ink all over it? No. Blotting out means you have to do something. You first have to go to the marketplace and buy you a sponge. Then after you've got your sponge, you have to go to somewhere else and find someone that sells vinegar. And you have to get a container of vinegar and some water. And you put half water and half vinegar in a bowl. And you stick your sponge in that bowl and you saturate it. Then you wring it out, and you saturate it again. Then you wring it out, and you saturate it again. When you get it totally saturated so that it can't hold any more moisture, there's nothing dry about it, you squeeze all the moisture you can out of it. Then you take that sponge, and you lay it on the skin of papyrus, that the, whatever it was written on. And as you lay that skin or that sponge on that skin of papyrus, the vinegar and water dissolves the ink. The sponge acts like a vacuum cleaner and sucks all that ink off the paste. And when you get through, you have a blank page. That's blotting out. See, God said, if you can just get into my presence, even in spite of mistakes or failures, if you'll just come back to the house, then I give you the privilege of carrying a sponge. And when you carry the sponge, anytime you need to use my blood, it's always available because that's what my kids get to enjoy. You get to carry a sponge that if you do make a mistake and you do fail, you just take the sponge out and dip it in that blood. And as you erase the record, you get to hold up a blank page that says, no more debt. I am not accountable. I have been set free from from the, the guilt, the shame, the condemnation of what's on this page. It's gone. I am free. That's a privilege. Now, there's also a duty of belonging to this house. And it's in Ephesians 3 verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, I beg you. Here, here's the duty of living at this house. Beg you. I plead with you. I entreat you. I, I, I trying, I'm trying to get your attention. Here, here's what I beg you to do. I beg you to walk worthy of the vocation or the invitation wherewith you were called. When you felt God call you, or, or, or you heard the message preached, or someone taught you that Bible study, and you responded, that call, that invitation you received by understanding 
what was being taught. That's it. I beg you, on, as a result of that invitation or that experience, I beg you to walk worthy. Worthy. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not a pleasant word at my house. That's not a pleasant word in my vocabulary. That's one of those words I just don't like to say at all. Because it causes all kinds of guilt. Who's worthy of the Lord? What have you ever done to make you worthy? How in the world are we going to walk worthy? You know, if you read that, that, that can cause such conflict that it would cause us to feel as if there is absolutely no way that we could ever live for God and ever become what God wants us to be. But God never intended for that to be the case. See, living for God is not difficult if you want to. It's an incredible experience. It's it's an experience where you can get as close to God as you want to get. You and God can have conversations. God can speak through His Word. He can speak directly to you. you. You can have a relationship with God that most people be, would be afraid of because we, we've been taught to fear Him. God don't want us fearing Him. He don't want us afraid of Him. What father wants his kids to run when he shows up? Hide because they're terrified he's, he's home. That's usually abuse. God wants us to run to Him when He shows up, not from Him when He shows up. So th- there's no way... That's the right translation, and it's not. That word comes from the marketplace. It's asios, and it's a term used to describe the purchasing of an item at market. It's a term used to describe buying a fruit, a meat, a vegetable at the market, or you want to buy it, and you bring it to the owner. He puts a scale on a table. He puts whatever you're buying on one side and starts putting weights on it. When the bar is level, you have paid a worthy price. So it literally translates to level the bar or to bring in the balance. So Paul said, here's the only duty that you have. Just try to balance your life. Just try to balance your life. Don't get overboard in any direction. Balance life. Anybody remember the old seesaws at the park that's my age? <laughs> you kids have no clue what a seesaw is, but all parks used to have a piece of steel pipe, well, uh, cement in the ground that someone had threaded, threaded couple our elbows on the ends and put a big piece of pipe to them. And they had tuba twelves bolted to that piece of pipe with a U-boat. Usually had a handle on each end, probably 20 foot long. They'd get real high. And, and kids would get on it. The problem is, if you got a little kid and a big kid, the big kid controlled everything that took place. Because the little kid just got to ride in the air most of the time because the big kid was in total control of everything that was going on. So if you wanted to be fair about it, and, and, and you liked your friend, even though, you outweighed him, and you were bigger than he was, and 
Y'all won't ever believe that at one point in my life, I was a pretty good-sized little kid. I was real short and weighed about 100 pounds and then grew nine inches one year and real tall and real skinny. <laughs> but at one point, I was, they called me zipper. They told me if I stick my tongue out stand sideways, I'd look like a zipper <laughs> because I was so thin. I was 6'1", weighed 135 pounds, just bump. So when I was little, though, I outweighed most of the kids in my class, and, and, and they'd say, James, move up a little bit. Because if you move towards the middle, there's a point in balance that the weight of this one times its distance is equal to the weight of this one times its distance. And if you can just get the big guy up a little closer, you can both enjoy it. That's balance. Everything in life has a balance. Everything. Hate has a balance. Now, some people get real out of balance with hate. That causes them problems. But there's a balance to it. Jealousy has a balance. You know what the, the balance to jealousy is? Most people will say love. No, that's nothing to do with love. See, jealousy is manipulation. It's trying to control somebody else. That's not love. The balance to jealousy is trust. You've got to choose to trust someone that you think is going to cheat on you. So you've got to be, there's, there's, life has a balance. There's not one thing in your body that doesn't have to be balanced. There's not one thing in your spirit that doesn't have to be balanced. You've got to balance your life physically. You've got to balance it emotionally. And you've got to balance it spirit, through the flesh or the suke. The body's got to be balanced. There's balance. Now, if you pray five hours a day, you're in trouble. That's not balance. Because prayer is simply power. And that's all it gives you. So when you pray and all you focus on is prayer, you're out of balance. The balanced prayer is the Word of God. So if you don't spend the same amount of time in the Word of God that you spend in prayer... You're going to get off into some junk. There's just no telling where you might go with whatever you think you're doing because there's no balance. You've got to balance life spiritually. If you spend an hour praying, you better spend an hour in the Bible because prayer is just the power, Word of God's roadmap. So if you spend all your time in prayer without the Word of God, you've got a whole lot of power, no place to go. You're just... My wife bought this little toy for my kids back in, in the 80s. She found a garage sale. It looked like a, a, a mine from the sea. You know, one of those round spears got the little spokes sticking out of it. You put batteries in the thing and turned it on, and all it did is vibrate. And it'd roll here a minute and over there a minute and over there a minute, and it just rolled. It, you could lay it on the table, and usually it wouldn't roll off. Sometimes it would, but it had, it had all kinds of power, but no direction. The Word of God is the roadmap. It's the light unto my feet. It's the lamp unto my pathway. If I don't stay in the book, doesn't matter how much prayer I got, I'll have no place to go. 
got to balance life. You got to balance spiritually. You got to balance it emotionally. You got to balance bad times with good times. Most people come to church, don't know how to play. We get real spiritual and don't think you need to do anything in life to be fun or, or, or to enjoy life or to laugh. And you're in trouble if you do that. Because if, if, if you believe that about life, then you have no resources when the bad times come. Because the resources to deal with bad times is good times. You had not played? What is worship? Isn't that God's act to play in the church? You ever seen someone worship with a frown on their face? You ever seen God really bless someone where, and they really just responded and, and maybe shouted a little bit with a frown on their face? No, you can't do that. You, it takes joy to worship. That means your face changes. You can't say you have joy if it don't show up on the outside. You can think you got joy inside. You don't have joy because it's going to show up out here. It's, it's going to reflect that. You ever watch someone, you ever seen someone get the Holy Ghost that face didn't light up in a smile when they got it? When they realized they received the Holy Ghost, their whole countenance changed. It's just, so God wants us to balance life. You got to balance it physically. You got to eat right, sleep right. Have physical activity. If you don't, you're out of balance. Body's going to suffer. When your body suffers, it's going to suffer, cause you to suffer emotionally and spiritually and all the other things are going to go right along with it because we're out of balance. we got to choose to balance life. And here's how we balance it. Lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring. Notice how he says this. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Most difficult thing you're going to ever try to learn how to do in life is keep the peace. It's endeavoring. It's learning how to work at doing these things. And it literally translates with haste that we do these things. It's, it's I see a need, and, and I don't just look at it and say, well, you know, that probably take care of itself. no. It's endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond. Bond is always translate glue. And the glue of peace. Endeavoring to keep unity of the Spirit. I work at having unity. I make a decision. If I do, I have a balanced life. That's the only requirement I have if to keep on my part of this covenant is just keep it balanced, James. And when I keep it balanced, it's incredible what kind of blessings show up around my house and how God shows up and what God does. But I got to keep it balanced. When I start getting off out of balance, everything just kind of comes to a halt. I don't see those things anymore that I used to see because I'm not balanced anymore. The moment I get my life balanced, my life changes. Please stand.